Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you so much for joining us on BC Podcast. Here's a message to encourage your heart this week. Well, good morning, and welcome to Bible Center Church. My name is Ryan. I'm the high school pastor here, and that was Brandon that you just had the privilege of seeing. That is like my right-hand guy in high school ministry. He's sitting up here, sent me a text last night and all kinds of emojis saying, I'm fired up, and so I sent him a text back with the, the picture of Scrat on Ice Age, like up against the tree, like, ah, I'm, I'm scared to death, help. So I'm like, I'm, pl- I'm, I'm glad you're fired up. Pray me through this, man. So uh, all that to say, I am extremely proud of you, Brandon, and, and the growth that I've seen in your life. He's been growing like a weed, um, and God's just doing, doing crazy things um, in our ministry, in our student ministry. I'm gonna address some of those things um, throughout our study this morning, but it is an honor and privilege to be able to present the gospel to you this morning from Ephesians 4 as we continue our thriving series. And so I've got Ephesians 4.14 uh, this morning. So I invite you to turn there in your, on your phones, on your apps, or in your uh, physical Bibles, if you will. And we're going to have fun this morning. Let's, uh, let's begin by going to God in prayer, and then we're, go- we're going to jump right in. Jesus, we lean on you to show us the way forward. And so I ask you to humble our hearts even now so that as James says in James chapter one, that we would be able to uh, receive, that we would be set receptive to your truth, that we'd be ready to receive your implanted word, which is able to save souls and to correct lives and behavior. And so I pray that you would humble us to receive what you have for us this morning and change us. I ask that we would leave here this morning looking more like you. We love you. And all God's people said, amen. A long time ago, my family and I, we were driving through uh, Wyoming. I was probably 15 or 16 at the time, so I'm guessing this is probably roughly 18 years ago. And we were, we were driving Route 80 through Wyoming. Any of you ever driven Route 80 especially out west through Wyoming, a couple of you, it's, it's amazing, it's beautiful. If you've, never, if you've never done it, highly encourage it. I would say do it on a motorcycle just so I can live vicariously through you because my wife's made it abundantly clear I'm never riding a motorcycle. I ask every year, so it's been 10 times now and she keeps saying no, but it's absolutely beautiful. It's, it's just a, it's a majestic drive, the prairies, the, the plains, the mountains and all that. But we're driving along and, and I was with my family, so my sister and my parents were, and we're actually traveling the country to raise support um, to move to Ireland. And we're driving along and I just, I, I see something out of the corner of my eye. And I'm like, what's going on here? And I look over and there's this antelope uh, that's running. And I'm like, yo, dad, like, let's stop the car. Maybe not stop, but slow down a little bit so we can, so we can watch this guy. Because I'm thinking something's not right here. Like antelope, they're pretty chill cats, right? Like, I don't know a lot about antelope, but the ones I'd seen, they just kind of walk around and eat grass with their friends and just seem to have a good time. But this guy, to me, I'm like, this, this dude's left the reservation, like both physically and mentally. I'm thinking he's gone, he's gone crazy until I look about 25 to 30 yards behind him and there is a literal wolf chasing him. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, this is a once in a lifetime thing. Like, stop the car. This is crazy. We gotta watch this. And so... So we ease up, and naturally, we, we all start rooting for the antelope, right? I mean, all of us love a, a good underdog story. I'm sure there's a few sick, twisted people in here like, nah, nah, I want to see him get cooked, man. I'm not, I'm not for the antelope. I'm for the wolf here, okay? But we're on team antelope, 
And so we're like, we're really, really invested in this thing. We're, we're giving them names. We're, we're like, our heads are out the window. We're like, come on, Kevin, come on, run. Like, oh, we're with you. Until we inched a little further forward and this hill that Kevin was getting chased up by, by the wolf, on the other side of it, we saw, Kevin, Kevin hadn't seen this. He's on his way up the hill. On the other side of the hill, there is a literal pack of wolves waiting. It was at that moment we knew it's not looking good for, for Kevin. So we rolled the windows up and just kind of took back off. And, and I'm going to be honest with you, it was actually kind of awkward because we're like, we're sitting in the van. We're like, morning, Kevin. Nobody's saying anything for 30 minutes. And none of us even know Kevin from Adam. But we're like really, really invested in this thing. And I realize I've probably just created a connection uh, between some of you and Kevin, which is great. And we want to believe that he's the good guy of the story. The plot twist is he's actually not the good guy of the story because he represents the Christian who thinks that he can go it alone. The Christian that decides to forego being a part of God's unified and thriving church, simultaneously giving up benefits of belonging to a local church like accountability and support and protection and a host of other things that come along with actually belonging. This includes those who slip in and out on a Sunday. And I get it, the size of our church is really conducive to anonymity, but I can't for the life of me find anywhere in the gospels where Jesus calls us to live lives of anonymity. This also includes those who refuse to serve the church or, or maybe you haven't refused to serve in the church. You just, it hasn't really dawned on you. You've not really thought about it. I'll call serving the great Christian drug. Because when our eyes are fixed on ourselves and we feel defeated and overwhelmed and discouraged, find a place to serve somebody else. Get your eyes off of yourself, wash somebody's feet. Because serving the church is a God-given, is a God-ordained action that fuels community, it fuels humility, it actually helps with mental health and it builds up the church, it draws us closer to God. So if you are like Kevin this morning, I'm here to tell you, you're extremely vulnerable. You're in a vulnerable place. The good is that I'm gonna spend the next little while showing us how we can change that. Meanwhile, the wolves in the story, they were doing exactly as they were designed to do. They were united, working together in a relentless pursuit to feed on that which would give them life. They were united, they were unified, and they wouldn't be denied. Believe it or not, that's actually how the Christian church was made to function. If you look back in church history, for the roughly for the first 1,200 years, it was the church. The church, it wasn't made up of a bazillion different denominations. We Christians weren't identified by the way that we voted. We were identified by the Christ that we served. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And so this morning, I wanna hone in on the idea that in order to be a thriving church, we must be feeding on the truth of God. In order to be a thriving church, we must be feeding on the truth of God. And so we're gonna begin reading in verse 11. I'm actually gonna pick up in the middle of a sentence, a phrase, a paragraph where Paul is explaining the benefits and the realities of a resurrected Christ and his work at power in us. When he writes this in verse 11, and he, that is Jesus, the resurrected Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints. Okay, so that's you and that's me for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all, all of us attain the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God 
to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So again, as Mike pushed last week, I'm going to push again this week. This is very much a we thing. This is not a me thing. This is a we thing. So then we are to be rooted in the truth of God is what verse 14 is telling us. The Apostle Paul actually states this in a negative way in verse 14. In the next couple of weeks in verses 15 and 16, we'll see he actually goes on to state it positively. But Paul gives an illustration of what happens to people who are not rooted and grounded and established in the truth of God. He actually gives four illustrations to be exact. And the first, he takes us to children. He says, we are to no longer be children. This reads like a challenge to grow up. It also reads like a warning. Don't remain as children, fickle and and vulnerable and vulnerable in your faith. John Stott said that, of course, we are to resemble children in their humility and innocence, but not in their ignorance or instability. So Stott, Stott addresses a tension that maybe some of you are thinking or trying to wrestle with right now, like, wait, doesn't Jesus in the Gospels instruct us to be more like children? Didn't Jesus love children? And he actually tells us to emulate kids. Absolutely, he does in their humility and their innocence and their faith. But Paul is addressing here the other side. They lack wisdom. They lack experience. They lack discernment. And so as a result of that, they fall prey easily to false teaching and honestly to just about every new fad that comes through the church. And it's honestly hard to keep up at times. That's why responsible preaching and teaching should always seek to answer elementary questions because we as teachers and preachers of the word, ministers of the word of God, have a unique responsibility to those who are not yet established in the truth of the word. Next, Paul changes the setting and he takes us to the sea, challenging us to not be tossed around by the waves. And so naturally our minds will want to go to the external elements that rob us of our joy and our peace, other things than me, other people than me. But it's not just addressing the external. No, he actually includes the internal storm, which accentuates the external storm. I would actually argue that the internal is far more powerful than the external. So much so that James addresses this in his letter to the 12 tribes. They've been scattered in context. This is the persecuted church. They were being persecuted for their faith, they've been scattered all over kingdom come. Their faith was being put to a very real and tangible test. And so he begins in verse five of James chapter one. He says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man and he is unstable in all of his ways. Even though there were very real, tangible, external pressures to the original readers of this text, he's talking about the internal. He's, He's addressing the mind. James right here is talking about the exact person that Paul is telling us in our text, in Ephesians 4, 14, we are to no longer be. Paul has been building this progression of thought, if you will, and ultimately he's piecing together the the Christian, the mature, the thriving Christian, what we are supposed to look like after we've been walking with Jesus for a while. 
James is also addressing believers likely mature in their faith, but not only that, they're, they're living a very different reality than the one that we're living. They're literally losing their, their lives for their faith. But that doesn't stop him from going into attack mode on their posture, on their posture towards God. He calls them double-minded and unstable if they lack passion and confidence as they approach God with their requests, which to be honest with you this morning makes me wonder if we're even cut out to receive these words in their original setting. Because here in America, quite frankly, we have all kinds of gods, right? We have gods everywhere, but I would say our, our two chief primary gods are, are what? Comfort and cash. Comfort and cash. Some feel, although we might never express this out loud, I can't believe he's saying this, some might never express this out loud, but that, that the lights have to be that the lights have to be just right. They have to be set just right, and 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 the, and the music has to fit my vibe. I have to be comfortable with it. And to be honest, let's take it one step further. The 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 temperature really needs to be set to 69 Fahrenheit for me to worship in spirit and in truth. That's why believers in China are asking the United States. They're saying, "Stop sending us your missionaries." You can't handle the realities here. You can't handle the realities of a persecuted church. You can't handle the realities of an underground church in a place where it's estimated some 10,000 people are being added to the kingdom every single day. They say, stop sending your people to us. You can't handle it. So what we're going to do is we're gonna start sending people to you. And that's what they've done. One of the leading exports of China has become missionaries and they are sending people all over the world with the gospel and yes, even to North America. We certainly don't give until it hurts. If we gave till it hurts or, or if we gave until we were just slightly uncomfortable, I think the church would have so much money we wouldn't know what to do with it all. We'll pitch a fit that Disney has abandoned its true family values and I would agree with you on that. They have, it, it, it is true that I would say that the Bible has not been their compass, clearly, for some time now. But here's the problem with that. We'll complain and then we'll proceed to give our tithes and offerings to Disney in the form of subscriptions and trips. <laughs> I mean, only in America, right? Where comfort trumps conviction and where cash is sooner spent to ensure that we are entertained to death. And then the leftovers consequently are given to God. Many of you know I led a trip last, last, uh, last month into Nicaragua. There were 23 of us to be exact. 23 of us, mostly students and five leaders, into the poorest part of this side of the world. Unimaginable, the things that you see. But it was interesting to me, within the first few hours of being there, I had students coming to me and they were like, Ryan, this is the most beautiful place that we have ever seen. And I was thinking, what are you talking about? Because they weren't talking about the landscape. We had, just, we had just gotten there. They hadn't seen the landscape. They were talking about the people. Again, some of the things that we saw unimaginable. We rode around on a bus and I, I swear the thing felt like a, like a tin can that was on fire because of the heat and the humidity. And so we had our, our windows down just for a little bit of relief. And so as we were riding around Managua in the bus, we saw kids running around in the streets doing everything they could to just earn a penny. We saw women on the corner selling themselves. It's a place that can very quickly make you feel like there is no God. And if there is, he doesn't live here. Over the next few days, we took a lot of notes on the culture. We walked the village, we prayed 
over, over people that we didn't even know who were so hospitable, they welcomed us into their homes. We walked, as you can see, we walked the trash dump, which is where uh, the, the, the people in the village of Cristo Rey make their living, sorting through trash, hoping to find something valuable enough to sell. Quickly dawned on me that the supplies that we are packing in are probably going to become the nicest things they've ever owned. The art supplies in particular that we are packing in because we had already noticed these are, they're very beautiful, very colorful, very artistic people. The art supplies that we're carrying in, that's our art team, would probably become the nicest things that they've ever owned. But then the most extraordinary thing happened. It was the final day of our VBS. It was a Thursday. I remember it like it was yesterday. I pray to God, I'll always remember it like it was yesterday. And these kids brought these, these treasured pieces, these treasured offerings of theirs, and they, and they brought it and they presented it to our team as an offering. Completely, completely shattered us. We were exposed to their lack for an entire week and watching them hold these colorful paintings up to the hands of our students, it changed me, it broke me. And I remember walking across the dirt street over to the bus where I thought nobody could see me. I didn't wanna, I didn't wanna be a, a downer to our team. And I just walked over and I leaned up against the bus and I began to cry and I cried so hard I wasn't even able to stand. I fell to my knees and one of our students, one of our seniors, she saw me. She came and picked me up and held me. But in that moment, God brought clarity to my mind on a couple of things that I never, never understood. One, I never understood why Jim Elliott and four of his closest friends would go give their lives in Ecuador. That made no sense to me until now. I never understood why the widow in Mark 12 with her two coins meant so much to Jesus, but now I understood. It all clicked, a moment of Holy Spirit-led clarity and passion for people. Next, we see that we are to be established in truth, so not to be carried away by every wind of doctrine. And so Paul changes the picture again, and he speaks of being carried around by every wind of doctrine. And so the picture here is of leaves or of straw or of paper in the wind, or in this case, kayaks. Uh, my wife and I are about to celebrate a decade of marriage, hard to believe. And so we would, we would say now things are extremely stable in our marriage. Things are secure in our marriage, but we weren't always able to say that. Things actually for us got off to a very, very complicated start. When I say got off to a complicated start, I'm talking about even our honeymoon we, uh, Steph and I, we had just gotten married and we decided to take our, our honeymoon on the waters of Northern Michigan. Some of you might be thinking, wow, oh my gosh, it sounds so exotic, so amazing, so beautiful. Here's the reality. We lived in Michigan for the first year of my ministry as I finished my theological studies. And so since we lived there, we, we were poor and we didn't have money to go anywhere else. <laughs> so, so, so to Michigan, we went to Michigan, we stayed. And so, uh, Anyways, we stayed on, on a, a section of the water called Bowers Harbor. It's, it's an offshoot of the Grand Traverse Bay. And at the time we were driving this, this caravan, this Dodge caravan with half a bazillion miles, you know, back in the day when those things used to go forever. I found it in the, in the, uh, the Kroger parking lot in Taze Valley. I found it, I, I, 
did pay for it, by the way. I realized how that might have sounded. <laughs> I found it and I paid for it. And so I was, I was proud of this thing. I'm like, man, the, the door's actually open on the back of this. And, uh, you know, I had a, one of those TV screens on the inside. And so I'm like, man, wait till she sees this thing. She's going to be like, oh my, oh my word, he loves me. He found a car that works, like the door's open. And the T, the oh my gosh, I'm marrying a family man. Like, like check this out. This is amazing. Anyways, this story is not about the van. I'm getting sidetracked here. But we're, we're, we're making our way up the, up the highway. We've got stuff clanging, clanging out the, the back uh, as, our, as our new van had just been vandalized by the, by the wedding crew on our way to Burger King, right? Because that, that was our first, that was our first meal. We, we didn't even get to eat at our wedding. We get to watch everybody else eat our food. Uh, we cut the cake. I'm not even sure that we ate the cake. We did have leftovers for six months though. It was amazing. So anyways, we get there and it's day, day number two of our honeymoon. I thought it's time. Listen, I've run all the raging white water of West Virginia, right? I know what I'm doing. Like this is, this is child's play. This is a simple bay, like open water. This is easy. I could do this with my eyes closed. And so, so I'm like, well, plus I, I really love, I was passionate about kayaking and I wanted my new wife to be passionate about the things that I was passionate about. And so she was like, okay, I, I guess, you know, why not? Let's, let's go for it. And so she's like, where are we going though? I'm like, what a silly question. Where are we going? We're going right there. There was an island out in the middle of the bay, uh, not in the harbor, but in the bay. So we were on the harbor, this is the bay. And you know, for the past few days, I had gotten up in the morning and made my coffee and went out, stood on the beach, just staring this thing down. Like, this is just a, this is an adventure. Like it is begging me to come explore it. And I'm not gonna say no. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna get out there one way or the other. Now, those of you with open water experience know there are a couple things that are very important to take into account. Like, Wind, right? Distance, currents, things are very deceiving on the water. An island that looks like it's like 200 yards away could very well be two miles away, as we would soon find out. So we've been paddling, we launched, we've been paddling for a good 30 minutes and she's like, babe, like, where is this again? Like, I thought you said this was really close. I'm like, it is, like, it's no problem, it's, it's fine. Just keep paddling, you're doing great. And uh, of course, you know, what's coming out of my mouth isn't necessarily what's going on in my head, but you know, the new husband, we've been married for three days. You gotta, you gotta be confident, right? I'm gonna keep you safe. It's all good, babe. Now, all of a sudden, Steph says, um, did you feel that? And I'm like, feel what? <laughs> like, what are, you, what are you talking about? I knew what she was talking about. She said, I felt a sprinkle. I was like, it's... We're kayaking, big deal. Like we're gonna get wet, this is part of the game. Like welcome to kayaking, it's all good. And then I look up and I realize it's not all good. We've made the transition from Ridenauer Lake to the Sea of Galilee in Mark chapter four. <laughs> the clouds, black clouds are, are rolling in. It's no longer sprinkling. It is absolutely thundering and <laughs> lightning and a torrential downpour and so my tone went from calm and collected to fly, go, paddle, go, 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 faster, faster, faster. All the while, our kayaks are literally filling up with water because we didn't have the sea spray skirts and all that good stuff on. We were just not equipped whatsoever. So I have a flashback to two days ago. What's going on two days ago? We show up at this cottage and, and the, the owners of the cottage are like, hey, 
listen, you guys have a great time. We just want to tell you a couple things about the water. It's really cold. You have about five minutes until hypothermia sets in. And by the way, generally one to two people die out here every year. I'm thinking, wow, what a blessing. Like, thank you for that tidbit of information. Like, what an encouragement to newlyweds who you know are going to go play in the water. Okay. And then I have a flashback to three days ago. So that was two days ago. What's happening three days ago? I'm standing at the front of a church doing my best to stare her father in the eyes and make promises to him like, I will love her, I will cherish her, and yes, I will protect her. Three days was the extent of my promise. She's rowing, I'm rowing, she's crying, I'm trying to inspire. Honey, look at your strokes. They're beautiful, you're a natural, go get it. To which she turns to me and says, Ryan Scott. Now this was the first time she ever used my middle name in our relationship. You can see where this is going. Ryan Scott, shut up, you are dead meat. (laughs) Think Kevin the antelope. (laughs) I remember praying on the way over, God, if you can get us through this, you can have all of me. I'm fully surrendered, just get me through this. The funny thing is I was already surrendered to him. I was already living for him at the time. I was just terrified. As a pastor, there are a few things that are more terrifying to me than watching Christians who are not rooted in the truth of the word of God and consequently they are carried around by every wind of doctrine and their journey is delayed by the wind. It's similar to those who lived on Bowers Harbor and they're watching Steph and I paddle row for our lives, even though we hadn't equipped ourselves with the truths that we should have equipped ourselves with, we weren't prepared. We didn't understand the realities of the wind or the weather or the chop. Folks, a follower of Jesus who is not rooted and grounded in the truth is living a very dangerous lifestyle because they're ripe for the picking, which leads us to our fourth and final frightening picture that Paul paints for us in verse 14. He says, carried around by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes, deceived by the trickery of men. Now remember, Satan is using false teachers at this point to lead people astray and ultimately to slow or to hinder the progress of the early church. And so Paul, on a regular basis, he would warn just as often as he would prod. On that note, I'm going to issue a warning of my own or a couple warnings of my own because Really, the world that we live in is really not all that different from the world that the Apostle Paul lived in. And so my first warning would be this, please be careful who you read after. Please be careful who you read because books create this subtle way of influencing our hearts and our minds and our affections and we're so easily influenced by the latest preacher or teacher or fad rendering us vulnerable to the wolves of which there are plenty. If something seems off, because the scriptures say that we are to weigh everything against the word of God, right? So if we are truly rooted in the words of God, if something seems off, then it probably is off. Find a good study Bible, find cross-references, find a godly friend. And warning number two, please be careful who you listen to. 
and be careful who you read and be careful who you listen to because social media has created an Instagram culture. I'm calling it a reels culture where teachers and preachers would rather go viral on TikTok than they would be used by the spirit of God to go viral in the hearts and the minds and the affections of their listeners. You know what I'm talking about. So as a result, many will craft sentences in a way that's conducive to the share button, but not conducive to the sin problem, right? If you are sooner enticed by a string of eloquent words online from a guy that you will never meet in your life, than you are by faithful men and women who are teaching and preaching and speaking into your lives and loving your families with no plans to get anything back out of it, then it might be time for a pause or a reset. John Calvin once said that Satan can never rest without striving to darken by his lies the pure doctrine of Christ. And God wants to test our faith with those struggles. So when the false teachers come and they will come, and they try to darken the truth of God, and they will, and they are. God is wanting to test us to assure that we are rooted in the truth of God. One of the most beautiful illustrations, plain illustrations of this, is actually found in the Bible. In Psalm chapter 1, paints such a vivid picture of what this kind of stability looks like in the Christian life. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but as the light is in the law of the Lord. What is the law of the Lord? What is the law of God? It's learning to love the things that God loves. It's learning to hate the things that God hates. His delight is in the law of God. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted, rooted by streams of water that yields in its season, yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. I love the simplicity of this passage. It is so clear. It is so straightforward. Do you want to experience spiritual stability? Do you want to be able to see through and discern through false teaching and the garbage of secular humanism? Learn to love the things that God loves and then learn to wrap and order your life around those things and then go crazy. For starters, we know that God loves a love for his word. He loves those who love truth. He loves a love for truth. We know that God loves irrational generosity towards others and towards his, his mission. We know that he loves Christians who belong to his church and engage in meaningful Christian community. We know that he loves a desperate need for and a radical dependence upon him, which comes through a vibrant and a consistent prayer life. In closing, I want to leave you with a few questions that should cause us to live in what I'm going to call this morning a, a holy tension. As we learn to love what God loves and hate what he hates, these questions should become undeniable passions that stir us into action as we live life on mission. So number one, what would happen if we as a church became absolutely broken over the sin and the drugs and the godlessness of our community. Some of you are already there and I see you and I appreciate you, but what I'm asking is this, what would happen if the rest of us became broken over these things that break the heart of God? What if we became so rooted in God's word that we experienced 
revived hearts because that is revival. And we began to see our friends come to Jesus in numbers that we have never seen before. Are you asking for it? Would you recognize it if it showed up? And I'm not referring to some tent revival that you put on the calendar. I'm talking about a real, actual, genuine, God-breathed, spirit-induced reviving of our hearts to the point where people can't not notice. Would we recognize it? You tell me, because it's here. It's been here, evident in the lives of our student ministry, of our students, and many others who are jumping in the boat. It's here. Our student ministry has been exploding for Jesus. They have begun to meet regularly in homes to confess their sins and to pray to one another, confess their sins in the James chapter five sense and to pray. And I'm not talking 20 minutes of thank you God for this day and for each other in our church. Keep us safe, amen. No, I'm talking about two and a half to three hours of begging God to send a spirit-filled revival to our midst, to revive us, to awaken our hearts to the things that he has for us, to make us awake to the things that he's doing around us now. The first time it happened, the cops got called because there were so many cars parked in my street that our neighbors couldn't park. This is what's going on. This is what's happening. And so from that phrase, this hashtag, why not us, was born. You might say, I've been seeing it on social media. I don't understand it. Well, you're about to. We thought, man, if God can do something at Asbury, surely he can do something with us, right? Surely. We're willing, we're ready, we're available. God, do something through us. As we give ourselves collectively to being rooted in the truth of God, there's no reason why all of us shouldn't take that posture and start to ask God and start to beg God to revive our hearts towards him and to birth from this place, from Bible Center Church in Charleston, West Virginia, a movement, a revival that sparks something through the rest of our state and country. There are few things that are more powerful than a group of people who are on fire for Jesus. There are few things more powerful in this life than a group of people who have seen God. There are a few things more powerful in this life than a group who has experienced the power of the Holy Spirit because once you experience his power, there is no going back. There is no not being changed. You are changed forever. There are a few things in this world more powerful than a group that believes that God can and wants to shape them and to use them to cause a movement to begin. There are few things in this life more powerful than a group of people who have been shaped and molded by the words of God. But with that being said, let me issue one final warning. If that is you and you say, yes, I am inspired to step into this boat, I went in on the action. Let me just go ahead and warn you. The most dangerous thing to a person with a personal agenda is a person with a Jesus agenda. Let me say that again. I encourage you to write it down. Take a picture. The most dangerous thing to a person with a personal agenda is a person with a Jesus agenda. And a Jesus agenda comes from being rooted and grounded in God's word. And so what happened? A revival, a movement broke out on the campus of Asbury University. And you know what Christians all over our country did? They questioned it. They questioned it. I mean, obviously, God doesn't work in this way anymore. Like the faculty, they've been cooking stuff up. Like surely, this is manufactured. 
And so pastors and spiritual leaders all over our nation began to raise questions. Folks, in that moment, they didn't need their commentary. They needed their support. Amen? Folks, jealousy is an ugly, ugly thing. It is nasty. It is putrid. It sickens God. And we wonder why American Christianity has a bad reputation in other areas of the world. I get it. A revival breaks out a few hours away. And instead of jumping in, instead of fanning the flame, we're too busy deconstructing it. God, help us. Will we be the kind of Christians that recognize and fan the flame of a spiritual movement and fund the flame of a spiritual movement or will we sit back and cross our arms and just analyze the ever-living heck out of it? You have the opportunity right now to, to run towards those flames and to fan them and to fund them. Don't miss it. Only God knows when this will happen again. Folks, I'm telling you, some people live, some Christians live their entire lives and never experience anything like this. We don't know when he's gonna send another one. So I encourage you, jump in. Final questions. I'm running out of time. Final questions. What would happen if we got serious about prayer? And yes, I realize the entire premise of this sermon is about the word of God and the truth of the word of God. But I have to talk about prayer because I believe with all of my heart that it is completely responsible for what God is doing in our midst and why he is pouring out his grace on us. You can't be a student of the word. You can't be rooted in the word. Of God. You can't be a thriving follower of God without speaking to him. That doesn't even make any sense. So what happened with, what happened if we, and, and track with me for a moment, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step on some things for a minute. What happened, what would happen if we stopped worrying about the service flow and we stopped worrying about having everything just right and perfect and tidy and buttoned up, and we're okay with it being a little bit messy. What, happened if we stop, what would happen if we stopped caring so much about what people think of me? I don't, want them, I don't want anybody to think I'm weird. I don't want anybody to think I'm charismatic. I don't want anybody to think I'm crazy. Listen to me, you probably are weird. You probably are a little charismatic. If you're not, then you probably should be a little bit more than you are now, and you probably are crazy. So be that to the glory of God, amen? Amen. What would happen if we became convicted over our sin, broken over our community, made breathless by the glory of God, and we came up to the front and we get, began to kneel because these steps aren't just here as a decoration. We began to kneel at the steps and we began to place our bodies on the steps and we began to cry out to God to save our city, to save Charleston. Do we want it? Do we recognize it? God wants to use us to turn the state upside down for him. He's just waiting on us. He's waiting on us. May God be glorified. Returning to our big idea, remember that in order to be a thriving church, we must be feeding on the truth of God. It's simple. Some of us just need to get back to the basics. I encourage you to come forward and pray if you want or pray in your seats, it makes no difference. And let's begin to beg God to continue to send a revival, an awakening, a movement, a stirring of our hearts to the city of Charleston. Maybe you need to confess personal sin that's prohibiting you from experiencing the full power of God. Would you take care of that today? Maybe you would say, Jesus isn't even my Lord and Savior. 
why don't you make the choice to follow him today? Settle that in your heart. We'll have prayer partners up here. Come up here and take care of it. And for the rest of you, I'm gonna encourage you to pour out everything you have in worship, both now corporately and this week in your personal lives. Pour out everything in the, in the, in the, in the study of God's word. Pour out everything in your personal prayer with him. And may God receive all the glory from our offering. Let's pray. Oh God, we, we come to you. We fall on our faces before you, recognizing your beauty, asking you through your spirit to take our breath away. I pray that you would break us over our sin and then help us to respond in confession as you desire to completely transform us into the image of your son. Please, please, please do not allow us to be a church that programs you out of our midst, but that we would be an environment that is right for an unstoppable movement of your spirit in our midst. Root us in your holy word so that no matter what comes our way, we will have a Jesus-sized foundation so that we will, as the psalmist said, we will not be moved. We ask this in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com and give us a follow on all platforms at Bible Center.